This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Now, it may shock you to learn that before I worked in radio, I was an academic. Don't believe me? Well, listen to this. It's something that I myself wrote back in the winter of 2001. Rather than creating a true contestation of the anthropologist's voice as truth, Price seems to use multivocality as a literary device to manipulate the opinions of the reader. The work does not reflect a strong political engagement, and in spite of Price's placing of real people as opposed to nameless informants as narrators in his discussions, his study is as much about himself as it is about colonialism and resistance in the Caribbean. Compelling stuff, I know. And thanks, George Bodarki, for the read on that one. As a result of my academic past, and in sympathy with many of my friends who are still academics and who are just starting to look for jobs now, I have in recent years developed a real interest in what Americans are talking about when we talk about going to college. Ordinarily, I am one of not a huge number of people who are interested in this sort of thing. But at this time of year, with back-to-school preparations beginning in earnest, parents frantically buying extra-long sheets for their college students' dorm beds, and the first painful tuition checks being written, the function of American universities, exactly what all this money is being spent on, is on a lot of people's minds. It's not surprising that the function of American universities is often on the minds of many in the academy. Not least of these is Fordham University English professor Leonard Casuto. He's also the Director of Graduate Placement and Professional Development for that department. And he has served on the Modern Language Association's Task Force on Evaluating Scholarship for Tenure and Promotion. He's also published several articles in the Chronicle of Higher Education about the situations that students and university professors find themselves in these days. Topics like tenure, publication with academic presses, and evaluation of students and faculty. I asked Casuto to join me in the studio earlier this week for a back-to-school chat about, well, school. Leonard Casuto, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, as we know, school is about to start again, and as the 2007-2008 academic year starts, what are the big problems that are facing universities? I would say that universities in the United States generally are dealing with what might be called the fallout from the culture wars of the 80s. And that fallout turned into a set of, I would say, ongoing attacks on the way that professors go about their business. There's a, a generalized suspicion, I think, of what goes on behind the so-called ivy-covered walls. And it's a suspicion that's destructive all around for students and faculty alike. It makes everyone defensive. The 1980s criticism of so-called tenured radicals spreading seditious knowledge to our youth has, you might say, matured and has um, turned into a uh, full frontal attack on the practice of academics in the United States. And, you know, if I sound a bit beleaguered, it's uh, not because I am personally, but because the profession as a whole is spending a lot of energy defending itself against charges that I think we can, that I, I would describe as simply specious. The idea, for example, that a professor who teaches, uh, let's say, three courses that meet uh, that that are worth three credits each, is only doing nine hours of work a week because that's the number of hours that you're meeting your class, and therefore a professor who's doing only nine hours of week of work a week is somehow um, lazing around and uh, 
generally living living high high on the hog of either the tuition dollars or the taxpayers' dollars or whatever combination of those, I think represents a willful misunderstanding of what professors do. And here I, I would say that the uh, the professor that a student sees is only one side of the professor that the student has. In order to be there for those nine hours a week, or in some cases six hours, or in some cases 12 hours, depending on the school, a professor, in order, in order to do her, her job right, has to be working all the time. There's research and preparation for those classes. There's the evaluation of work from those classes. And if you do this right, it's not simply a full-time job. It's a full-life job. Virtually every professor I know, and I know a lot of them, of course, being in, in the business for 20-odd years, we work all the time. And the uh, to have to spend a portion of our time defending ourselves against charges that we don't work is ironic at the very least and frustrating and worse. Now, that does sound frustrating, but how does it affect sort of the state of affairs for everybody in the country, not just professors? For a student, uh, I think that there is a lot more of what might be called defensive driving going on in the classroom. Students, I think, come into their college experiences now with some of these misconceptions. Certainly their parents do. And the combined result of the misinformation can lead to the kind of combativeness that, for example, a professor named Michael Barabay wrote a book about. He called It's called What's Liberal About the Liberal Arts. And the book came out of the experience he had, which he wrote about in an article, of having a conservative student in his class who, um, who sought confrontation with him at every turn and what it is that and how he dealt with that. I am much more aware than I used to be that my way of going about my business is more apt to come under attack, not simply scrutiny, which I welcome, but attack than it once was. So do you get a sense that it's sort of like um, people say like the liberal media, sort of the liberal academic? It's probably not unreasonable to suggest that academics are as a group left of center. I think that the surveys will show that that's true, just as the surveys show that it's true of journalists. But I think the question is not so much who you vote for when you go into the booth as it is how you go about your professional business when you're outside the booth. So if you would say that there's, I guess, a little bit of a a suspicious relationship that's developed between students and professors in college, what are the likely sort of ripple effects of this throughout society, in your view? First of all, I, I I would suggest that in my own job, this atmosphere of suspicion is relatively muted. That having been said... I think that the effects of this are profound. I think that there is a growing breakdown of trust between the middle class and the university, and that the trust relationship that exists between the American middle class and the American university has been absolutely crucial for the, to the workings of the American university for at least 60 years and probably longer. It's since World War II that the American university became a middle-class place. Before World War II, before the GI Bill, College education was much more the province of the well-heeled and the well-to-do. The GI Bill made college education available to everybody following World, World War II. That's my parents' generation. Today, I think it's, it's so entrenched in the way that, that we look at the world that we understand in the United States that college education is something that anybody can get and that anybody can have and that p- 
people who want to get ahead in the world should have. And I think that that's, that's all very good. And our higher education system is terrific as a result because the government and the people and the academy have all gotten together behind the idea that college education is a way to get ahead. That's, that's all fine so far. But in order for this to work, the tax dollars and the tuition dollars that the middle class pays into the academy, either directly in the form of tuition payments or indirectly in the form of taxes that are paid to the government, which the government then uses to fund public universities, in order for the relationship to work, the middle class has to believe that those payments are yielding a return that is satisfactory, productive, and ultimately nourishing for society as a whole. I think that right now, and I trace this back to the culture wars of the 80s, which of course have their own roots, but I think that trust relationship is in trouble at the moment, and I think it has to be repaired, not simply for the good of professors and students, although their welfare is important because the students of today are the people who run things tomorrow, but also for the good of the entire social contract as it's understood in the United States, the value of education to advancement. And if education is to have an enduring role in the way that this country goes about its business, and I think that most of us would agree that it should, then the trust relationship has to get fixed. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're having a back-to-school conversation about college in America. My guest is Lenny Casuto. He is a professor and the director of graduate placement and professional development at Fordham's English department. I asked Casuto about something that I've been curious about for a while, the differences in higher education between the United States and other places. I was curious about this because in talking to my husband, who is English, about college, I learned that the liberal arts degree isn't the norm there the way it is here, and that college is more of a course of study in a specific topic that you are likely to have already decided on. Was this true? Historically, that's a big difference between what goes on in the United States, in United States higher education, and to pick a notable contrasting country, England, or really most of the other European countries. The United States, the historical legacy here is very important because higher education in the United States began in the 17th century. Harvard was the first place, William and Mary the second, and uh, Harvard was uh, designed as a place for clergy. But um, as higher education evolved in the colonial period and in the early federal period in the United States, it was a place where you learned to become a functioning member of uh, high society. So it was a place that was trying to mold young adults into responsible adults. That's the oldest history of American colleges, that they were there to take young men of privilege, and I use the term men advisedly, and you turn them into the kinds of cultured, high-class characters that their parents and presumably they themselves are aiming to be later on. That's the history. It runs into a contrasting stream because at the end of the 19th century, American higher education imported the idea of the research university from Europe, specifically Germany. So 
there was a 200-year history of in loco parentis, that is, the university acting in the, in the stead of the parent to form young men of distinction. And then at the end of the 19th century, graduate education as we know it, the research model as we know it, enters into the United States. And if, if I want to boil this down to a very stark dichotomy, the question of whether the university's business is to educate people or to create knowledge, there's a separate tradition for each one of those. And in the United States, we have a long tradition of both of them cohabiting uneasily. And in the United States, I think uniquely in the West, you have these two models existing at the same time, competing, in essence, for uh, primacy in the goal orientation hierarchy of American higher, higher education. And in many respects, a lot of the problems that exist today in American higher education are a result of the unreconciled nature of these two goals. A university certainly can do both. It can create knowledge and educate people at the same time. But it is important for the two sides to talk to each other and to figure out how to work together. And there has, in at least as by my lights, not been enough of that discussion. There's also a third thing, which I certainly have noticed more since I've been a grown-up, um, which is that universities, to some degree, also function to uh, kind of create grown-ups, but at the same time to prevent kids from, I guess, having to be grown-ups too quickly. That's a good point. I think that that, too, that falls under the in loco parentis rubric, and all of this um, is felt in questions of what about underage drinking and and drug use on campus years ago, a generation ago, if students got involved in um, youthful hijinks, the university would often step in and um, serve as a buffer between the students and the police. And uh, in some places, that still goes on. But the question, though, of what function does uh, the university play in deferring adulthood is, I think, a part of the larger question of how does the university go about forming adults? And if you have an institutional view, and this will vary from institution to institution, that uh, kids should be allowed to be kids, then activity programming will follow. And if, if the people who direct the social life at the university are doing things right, there will be a unity of purpose, and the uh, kids will be allowed to be kids without having them wreck the place. But um, other universities, not simply in England, but also here, will operate under a, a different set of assumptions, that uh, kids, when they go to college, are ending a certain part of their childhoods, and it's, it's time to become scholars or time to become grown-ups. And, uh, and again, at a well-run university, the kind of social life that follows will presumably support those assumptions. There's one other kind of education that I do want to mention, um, and it will be quite familiar to any New Yorker who rides a subway, which is the preparation for a very specific career following high school. How does that fit in with all this, if at all? Your question goes to another area in which American higher education is different and special. In England, for example, you pick your goal, your career goal, very early. If that goal, let's say medicine, involves going to university, you go to university, and if you make the grade, you become a doctor. 
If your goal is to become a paralegal in England, you don't have to go to university. You'll, you'll go to a technical school and you'll receive the technical education that you require and you'll go right into the profession. The United States higher education is not unique but nearly unique in the West in that it offers an opportunity for students to um, experiment and look around and try to find something that they're interested in that will motivate them through a professional life. To me, that's a great thing, but perhaps I'm speaking from my own experience that it took me quite a while to find that that uh, motivating field. And uh, if I had been forced to choose sooner, I might have chosen differently, and I might have wound up less less satisfied in my professional life than I am. Now, since you were in college, how has what we expect from students and faculty changed? And how has what we expect from college changed? I think that there's a lot of continuity in what we expect of college, that there is a consistency of expectation that the middle class has of college education that is really vital for the continuing function of higher education, which is a very conservative institution in the United States, uh, conservative with a small c, that higher education, it doesn't pay for higher education to change too quickly because it undermines the faith that people have in it to remain a bastion of upward mobility in the United States. And the credentials that higher education gives to students are not just credentials that enable the entry into different professions, although they do do that. The credentials that higher education provide also give membership in a larger group. A university is not just the students who are attending and the faculty who teach there. It's everyone who's ever gone. It's everyone who's ever taught. A legendary dean at Harvard wrote a book called The University, an Owner's Manual. Uh, His name is Henry Rosowski, and he uh, tells this story in the book of how uh, when he was a dean, he used to see student protest groups. And he had a, a method that whenever a group of student protesters would come to him for any reason, he would invite them in and he would say, before you begin, I just want to say one thing. You're here for four years. I'm here for life. The university is here forever. Now, what is it that you wanted to talk to me about? I think that all universities, to a greater or lesser degree, are investing in their foreverness, and that that foreverness is under attack. It still has a long way to go before it it breaks down. So um, if I compare what I was expecting of college when I entered in 1977 with what um, a freshman might expect entering in 2007, I think that there's a lot more that's the same than different. What can a professor expect? Well, I'm a professor now, but I wasn't one then. And so I don't really know. I think that there are some continuities, some important continuities, because the big change for professors when the profession suddenly became very tight and it became much harder to get jobs, that took place in the early 70s, that change. Before the early 70s, The employment market for professors was wide open to the point that some of my teachers when I was in college used to reminisce about how when they got out of graduate school, they could pick which region of the country they wanted to work in and almost pick their jobs because the baby boom was expanding the student population 
and there was post-Sputnik money that was resulting in funding more and more programs. Faculty positions were exploding all over the place. Well, in the 70s, that shut down very abruptly, and it has remained so ever since. So there's a sameness, a consistency between 1977 and 2007 in that respect, too, that professors entered the world of publish or perish shortly before I went to college, and they've been in it ever since. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30 on WFUV, it's Cityscape. My guest today on Fordham Conversations is Lenny Casuto. Casuto is a professor and the director of graduate placement and professional development in Fordham's English department. I asked him what my friends who are just starting out in the academic job market can expect. The academic job market is harsh. It's harsh in almost every field. Competition for tenure-track jobs is fierce, and in the humanities and social sciences, it is not unusual for a posting of a single tenure-track job to result in several hundred qualified applications. When you apply for these jobs, it's a lot like throwing your, ha- your ticket into a raffle, and it psychologically requires a lot of strength. Now, for people who are just starting out as students who are starting college this year, what can they expect? I think that a student starting college in the United States this year has a pretty good deal. American higher education, despite the political debates that simmer below the surface and in some cases boil and out in the open, I think that um, the American university is doing a pretty good job of taking in people who have less education and turning them out into the world four or, in some cases, five years later with more education and a budding specialization. That is, I, I think that um, that American higher education remains a, um, a, a, a productive adventure, an interesting adventure. Now, you sort of started addressing this already, um, but I will ask you, a lot of people outside of academia would sort of, I, I don't want to say mock, but but mock the complaints of academics that their livelihood features a lot of injustices, um, hardships. But from outside, it kind of looks like, oh, you know, they have summers off, they get to choose what they're doing, you know, they get to do this great field work abroad and so so on and so forth. What's to complain about in the academic life? I certainly don't want to suggest that professors are an oppressed class. I think that this is a good job and I'm glad I have it and I enjoy doing it. What I do want to suggest, though, is that just because it's a good job doesn't mean that we don't work like hell within that job, nor does it mean that it is a job without pressure. There is an enormous amount of pressure in a professor's job, not just financial. We don't get paid all that much compared to people with comparable expertise outside the academy, but that's okay. That's a choice, and that's part of what we get. The summers are part of what we get in exchange for that the flexibility to do the work that we want to do according to the schedule that we want to do it. But I don't want to end this without stressing that doing a professor's job involves an awful lot of pressure, particularly before the tenure hurdle, that um, six, seven years of graduate school followed by about 
the equivalent period, another six or seven years, working for tenure, you're investing an enormous chunk of some of your most productive years trying to make that grade, trying to clear that hurdle to, uh, to scale that obstacle, to reach a point where a professor has more power to choose the sorts of things that he or she wants to work on. I think it's important to acknowledge that while professors have flexibility, they labor under certain kinds of pressure which are unusual in the working world. The idea that you can lose your job after having invested 12 years of relatively low-paid full-time work in it, you just lose it. That's what the tenure decision can be. And to work toward that decision is highly pressured. An associate in a law firm understands this. But uh, if an associate in a law firm doesn't make partner, then it's probably easier for that lawyer to go out and get another lawyer's job than it is for a professor who's been turned out at tenure to get another professor's job. Professors also, when we're in graduate school and we are studying and preparing to get the credential that will get us onto the job market, at the same time we spend we wonder where in the country will we wind up because the job market isn't what it once was and if you get a job you're lucky and you go where the job is so to be in in graduate school in let's say um, North Carolina and to go out on the job market knowing say you you like North Carolina you like the South but you might get a job in um, Arizona and if you get one you count yourself lucky and you go off and you start your life again in Arizona it's a kind of pressure that is unusual in the American professions. It's worth it in many ways. I have um, a rare freedom to learn about what I want to learn about and to teach what I want to teach and to enter into satisfying relationships with students and with colleagues and you know, to learn all the time. I'm still in school and I love school. I loved school when I was a student, and I love it even more now that I don't have to take tests. So it's a fun job. It's an interesting job, but it's a hard job. In the interest of both students and faculty, what would you like to see happen in the academy? What would I like to see happen in the academy? I would, I would, I would like to see more awareness within the academy and outside the academy of the issues that confront the academy, specifically the mutual suspicion, the lack of trust that is bedeviling both sides. I don't think that either the critics of the academy or the professoriat ourselves need to spend as much energy as we spend opposing each other. I think that uh, that our goals really have a lot more. Uh, there's a lot. I think there's a lot more common ground than either side is currently willing to admit. I hope that we can spend more time looking for it. So what are you planning on doing this year? Well, I'm going to teach four classes. I'm going to teach two of them to freshmen and sophomores and two of them to graduate students. I'm going to direct the dissertations of approximately eight students at the moment. The number might go up uh, over, over the course of the year and uh, they are at varying stages of completion, and the ones who are nearing completion, I will 
do what I can to help them get jobs. I will also, in my capacity as director of graduate placement, help the students who are not mine get jobs as well. That's one of the jobs that I'm doing in the department. In my research and scholarship world, I will see the uh, a book manuscript that I'm finishing into production. I will continue to edit an omnibus history of the American novel with 70 contributors that I am shepherding towards completion of their essays. And then I will be putting those essays together into an enormous reference volume. And uh, I will probably also look for some freelance writing to do that will be occasioned by different uh, events and books that I notice around me. So um, I, I figure that should keep me busy. Well, Lenny Casuto is a professor and the director of graduate placement and professional development at Fordham's English Department. Lenny, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, close your blue books and put down your pencils. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you missed part of the show today, or if you would like to hear it again, there are a couple ways to go. It's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's in our audio archive. You can also find that on our website. If you have comments or questions about today's show, we would love you to email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.